Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 19 as just an introduction to the message and um, preaching this morning on the personality of God, the personality of God, a big subject because anytime you deal with the Lord, you're dealing with a big subject and so trust the Lord to give us understanding as we deal with this today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw nigh or draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke into love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversaries. And he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he is sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the privilege to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for your people who have assembled here today. And maybe some, Lord, are not yet your people because they've not trusted you as their personal Savior. But we know that everyone is important to you. And Lord, you've written the scripture for us because you are you concerned about us, you care for us. And Lord, for us who, are not, who know you as Savior, I pray that you might teach us today so we might better know the God that we serve. And for those who have not trusted you as their Savior, I pray that today they might come to faith in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you've uh, blessed us in so many ways, and we want to just express that today of our appreciation. Help us, Lord, as we look into your word, give enablement to bring the message, and may your will be done in each life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist said in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The same psalmist was so impressed by what he saw when he looked up into the heavens that declared the glory of God that he said this in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? So you see, just a glimpse of God's glory and his handiwork as we look up into the heavens should humble a person and make us wonder if it's possible for us to actually know such a mighty, awesome God. And the answer of the scripture is yes. Yes, we can know God. In fact, the word of God was written by God so that we could know about him 
And then God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we could not only know about him, but that we could actually know him personally. The Bible states it this way in John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So God's Son declares who God is. You want to see God, you look at Jesus, and he declares exactly who God is. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us understanding that we may know him that is true. Paul said it like this way, like this in Philippians chapter 3, in verses, verse, beginning verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And then notice this. And be founding in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul said that his desire was to know God. We can actually know God. So we ask the question, how can a sinful man know God? I mean, a person who's hasn't trusted the Lord as their Savior. How can they know God? And maybe you're that person today. Maybe you've never come to faith in Christ. And the question is, how can you know a holy God? Well, the answer is, you can't, unless. You see, you can't yourself. You can't say, well, I know God. We, he and I talk all the time. Uh, like a country song you said many years ago, me and God got a good thing going. I don't like that terminology at all. <laughs> Some people think they know God because they talk to him, you know, go out in nature and they see the benefits of all these done. They talk to the Lord. But the Bible says you cannot know God unless you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You see, you have to be forgiven of sins because you're a sinner and he's a holy God. How can you know God and have communion with him when he's so holy and you're so unholy? Well, you can't unless... He takes away your sin. And then that's not enough. He just can't take away your sin. He has to give you his righteousness so that you can have communion with him. He is righteous and you are righteous and you're standing with the Lord and you can have communion, communion with God. Once you trust God as your personal Savior, you can begin to actually know God. Now the text we read this morning emphasizes the fact that believers can know God that they actually do know God. And they had the privilege of drawing near to God and coming boldly to his throne. It's, that's amazing, you know, that we as an individual can come boldly to the throne of grace, approach God boldly, and we can draw near to him in full assurance, that passage says. It also warns that anybody who rejects the truth about Jesus, that, and that they will actually reject the only way to know God, and therefore, they are going to be condemned. The Bible says they will surely face the fiery indignation of the living God. And God warns us in verse 31 of that passage, he says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No wonder Jesus warned in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, fear not them which kill the body are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in 
hell. And so we should be afraid of God in that sense because God can destroy us in hell. So you have a choice. You can either have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can actually know God or you can spend eternity separated from God and never know him. In fact, the only thing you'll know about God throughout all eternity is his eternal wrath and damnation upon you. And you will know that he's a wrathful, angry God because you've rejected his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God to know, um, for God to be known, he has to be a person. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But if you're talking about knowing somebody, it, it has to be a person. You know, you don't know a tree. You don't know a plant. Uh, you really don't know an animal in, in the intimate way that you can know a person. But to know God, God has to be a person. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be in a series, and I'm going to be talking about God. That's called theology. We're going to talk about God. Next week, we're going to probably deal with the Trinity of God. And then we're, for a few messages, we're going to talk about some specific things about the greatness of God and also the goodness of God. But today, we're going to consider the personality of God. You see, if we're going to know God, we have to know some things about his person. So I want to tell you some things about the person of God, the personality of God. The first thing is this, the God of the Bible, and he's the only true God, all the others are false, the God of the Bible is living, living. In this passage we read in Hebrews, he says, um, you know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Joshua was, used that term in, in Joshua chapter 3. It says, our Lord said, hereby ye shall know that the, the living God is among you. Told Joshua, Here, here, hereby you'll know the living God is among you. Well, how was he going to know that? Well, Joshua was going to face the Jordan River, which was at flood stage, and he has probably two million people that are across the Jordan River. How's that going to happen? How are you going to get that many people over? The Lord says, you'll know the living God is among you because he's active and he can do things. And what did he do? Well, upstream, he dammed up the Jordan River and all the tributaries coming into the Jordan River above the, the city of Adam, he dammed it up and he just made a big wall of water, you know, and the water was still flowing, but God says, just stop right there. So he dammed it up and all the water ran down and, the, and the, he dried up the riverbank or the riverbed and they walked through on dry ground. Wow. They found out the living God was among them. He is the living God. So not only was he a living, living God in, in that sense that he can do things, but he's a living God as opposed, to be, as, as opposed to dead idols. God says all the idols are dead. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a nose, they can't smell. They have eyes, but they can't see. And uh, they're dead. All the idols are dead. And God says, I'm not like that. I'm the living God. He's also living in the sense that uh, he didn't get his life from anybody else. You know, all of us got our life from our parents and ultimately from God, but God never got, got his life from anybody. He is, he is forever living. He has always lived. There's never been a time that God did not live. He is forever living, so he's the living God. He's also the living God in the sense that he's the source of all life. 
of all life. You remember in Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 2, it's explaining the creation of, of Adam. And it says that God made him, and then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Where did his life come from? It came from God. So the whole theory of evolution is totally against God. No Christian should even consider it at all as something that's viable, you know, that's something that's true. Uh, they should say it's, it's false. It's false completely. Why? Because they try to take away that fact that, live, the living, that life comes from God. It developed, they think, by chance. No, it didn't develop by chance. God made life. And God gives life. And so God gave life to you. God gave life in the beginning uh, to Adam and Eve. He breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In fact, when you, became, when you were trusted the Lord as your Savior, what does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead in sins. You were the dead walking. <laughs> you know, you're walking around, but you're really not alive. Physically, you have life, but as far as Communion with God, you're dead. You're separated from God. So how can that change? Well, God has to quicken you. God has to make you alive. And so if you were, if you were saved, there came a day when God quickened you. You didn't gradually work into it. You didn't build up to it. You didn't learn this and learn that, and finally you became a child of God. No, it happened abruptly. It had happened immediately that you were born again. You trusted Jesus, and you got, had new life. God gave you that new life. Life comes from the Lord. The Bible says in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but, but by me. So you must be alive to experience the living God. And so he is a person, but before you can experience uh, knowing him as a person, you must be alive as well. And so his personality is that he's the living God. The God of the Bible is also intelligent. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. Interesting thing is said here. It says, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth. So this is before creation. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. When he, when he founded the earth, he was already wisdom. So the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens, and by his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down, drop down the dew. So before creation, he was wisdom, he was understanding, and he was knowledge. And the wisdom of God and the understanding of God is, should impress all of us. Hebrews chapter, rather Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? For, uh, or, of, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The God that we serve is an intelligent God. He has intelligence. And so uh, he always had that. Before creation, he had wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It was a part of him. He had that intelligence. And for us to know God, we have to understand that. This is a comfort to believers because Job chapter 23 says this, 
but he knoweth the way that I take. This was after Job's going through all those trials. And he was comforted in the fact that God knows all about it. God knows about it. I don't understand it, uh, but God knows about it. He says, I'm, he knows the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. This is a warning also to the unbeliever that God knows everything. And he's intelligent. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3 says, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. You'd think that comes from an austere prophet or something. But that was a, young, a, a little lady by the name of Hannah. And she made that wonderful statement. She said, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him all actions are weighed. You hear some of these silly politicians and the way they talk. They are so foolish, and they don't seem to understand that God knows all about them, and he weighs their, their actions, and, he, is so, and he's, he has all knowledge and understanding, and they have the audacity to rebuke and, and to reject the word of God, which is God's word to us, and uh, it's so foolish. But we have to understand that God is a God of intelligence. We can... We, as we get to know God, we will find that he knows all. So he's a person. He's a living God, and he's an intelligent God. He knows everything. But there's another thing about God that we need to know as far as his personality, and that is the God of the Bible is self-conscious and complete. Now, none of you today are totally self-conscious. I ask you, do you understand everything about yourself? Now, did you ever look in the mirror and say, why did I do that? <laughs> did you ever question yourself? Uh, we're, we're not totally self-conscious, but God is. God is totally self-conscious, and he knows everything, and he is complete, and you can't improve on him. God knows he's complete, he's total, and he cannot be improved upon. You cannot teach God anything. You cannot instruct God in any way. You can't help God understand anything. God is complete. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses said, Who am I going to tell them that, that's going to deliver them? And he says, I am that I am. Remember the time that Jesus was approached in the garden of those that were coming to arrest him, rest, rest him. And he said, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And if you look at your Bible, he is in italics. And that means he just said, I am. And what happened when he said, I am? They fell down to the ground. He is the I am God. He is totally sufficient, and he's totally self-conscious. He's complete, and he didn't get his being from anybody else. He's a, he's a complete package. God is everything. God is, is self-existent. God is not growing and learning. He's not learning as he goes along. The Bible says in 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You cannot teach God anything. God doesn't need us, but we need him. Sometimes you hear people express it in a false way, I think, and that is in eternity past, God was sort of lonely. And he wanted somebody to fellowship, and so he made man. I'll guarantee you it was not that way. 
If God was lonely and he needed something, then he's not God. God's totally self-conscious and he's totally complete and there's nothing that can complete him and make him better. God made the decision that he was going to create man, he was going to create the earth for his glory. But he did not need us, and he doesn't need us today, but we need him, and we need to understand that. The psalmist seemed to understand that in Psalm 139, when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the the way everlasting. So the psalmist understood that God knew him, and he needed to know God. And he said, search me, O God, and clean up anything that's wrong there, and I want to know you. As we know more of the completeness of God, we cry out to him for help. And that's why you go to the Lord. When everybody else seems to fail and nobody has the answers, you go to God because he does. And uh, we cry out to him for his help. In Hebrews chapter 13, you remember it says, uh, he will never leave us nor forsake us so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. So God is the, uh, the complete God. That's his personality. Nothing lacking in him. Also, the God of the Bible is spirit. The Bible says it like this in John chapter 4, verse 24. God is a spirit and it can properly be translated, God is spirit. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, he is not confined to space and time, but he is present in space and time. Anywhere you go, God is there. If I make my bed in hell, the psalmist said, he's there. God is everywhere. And so he, he is spirit. As spirit, he is everywhere present. He is not threatened by anything physical, and he is not impressed by anything physical. God's never threatened by any physical thing. In fact, he sort of says that in Isaiah 40 when he compares uh, all the nations of the world just like a drop in a bucket compared to him. Nothing physical uh, threatens God. And nothing physical impresses God. You won't impress God by putting on a show. You won't impress God by any physical thing. God looks at your heart, and that's what he's interested in. Therefore, he says, God is spirit, and they that worship him must must worship him in spirit and in truth. The fact that God is spirit is also emphasized when he tells us that we shouldn't worship idols. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says this, verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, that ye, that ye, for ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb. So when God appeared to Moses, there was no physical form. And he says, take heed to yourselves. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God says, don't make any figure. I now know of two cases where a figure of Jesus was sort of reverenced. I told you about the one. Uh, Back years ago, I knew a pastor that uh, 
he was pastoring the church, and it really troubled him. There was a big picture of Jesus behind him every time he preached. When he came to that church, that big picture of Jesus is back there. So it just bothered him so much, so one day he took it down. He came to church, and the people were all upset because he took that picture down. <laughs> you see, they reverence that picture. Just during Bible camp, I met a pastor friend who I hadn't seen for several years. And he's told me he was pastoring a certain church, and he faced the same thing. And he was threatened, he was tempted to take it down, but he decided, no, I'm going to teach, and I'm going to let the people come to that decision. And he was rejoicing at Bible camp because I think it's just a week or so before the people voted to take the picture down. <laughs> why, would, why is that important? Because that's an image, that's a likeness. Let me make this up-to-date in a sense. Have you heard a lot about the, about the Shroud of Turin? <laughs> you hear about it every year. I heard it discussed on the radio the other day, so I looked it up, and I was surprised how much, how much uh, is built around that Shroud of Turin. I mean, they have exhibits all over the place <laughs> depicting that. And a lot of them come up with this conclusion all the scientific uh, studies of that shroud are such that it must have been supernatural that the, that the wounds are there on that cloth. And the place on the side is there. That it's got to be Jesus, and the only way it's possible because of all their studies that it could be that, and, and that had to happen at the resurrection. And saw God some, sometimes supernaturally put those images in that, that veil. Let me tell you this, that did not happen. I think it's a fake. Why do I say that? Why would God do something he tells us not to do? Why would God, through the resurrection power, make an image on that cloth that people would reverence when he told us not to do that? God had nothing with making that image. Maybe the devil did. I don't know, but you're not to worship that. You're not to go to a place to see some relic or some, something that might be Jesus or the cloth. That, not, don't waste your time and don't waste your money. That's idolatry. And God speaks against that. Why? Because God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, God is concerned about the way we worship him. It's true that God became a man so that he could be physical and he could take our place on the cross of Calvary. And he died on the cross for that very... He came to this earth, became a man for that very reason, so he could take our place. And I believe there's a body in heaven today because Jesus rose victorious from the grave, ascended up into heaven. And I think there's a body in heaven. Jesus is in bodily form in heaven today. But God is still everywhere. <laughs> and God says that he's still all-powerful, and he's omniscient, and he's everywhere present, and God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Sometimes we look around, and a church service, it might be our service, like a traditional church service, it might be a contemporary church service or whatever, and we look around and we can tell, it doesn't matter which one it is, you can sort of tell if the people are just singing because they, the person told them to sing, or if they're saying the words because they know the words, or they're doing it from their heart, <laughs> from their heart. And that's the important thing. 
that we trust the Lord, we serve the Lord from the heart, worship him in the spirit and in truth. Then another thing about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is also a God who has purpose. Ephesians 3, verse 11 says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God is a purposeful God. Daniel 4, we saw it, you have it in your bulletin if you want to look there. Daniel 4, it says, Nebuchadnezzar made this statement. I bless the Most High and I praise and honor him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? He does does according to his will. God has a purpose. So this God is a purposeful God. He knows what he's doing. He he, he has planned what he is going to do. And he will do it because he is a God of purpose. That's comforting to us as Christians because we know that God has a purpose for us. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, I'll guarantee you God has a purpose for you. And when you get to know God, you'll begin to know something about his purpose for your life. God has a purpose. I'm glad he does. In 1 John chapter 3, it says like this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God has a purpose for us. And if you trust Christ as your Savior, one of his purposes is to make you just like him. Now, you won't be God or anything like that, but otherwise you'll be, you'll be perfect, you'll be sinless, you'll be like God in that, way, in that sense. Be like Jesus. And you'll even have a body like Jesus, a glorified body. That's God's purpose. And so God is patient with us because he knows his purpose. And he wants us to to, uh, obey him and go along with his plan for us and not to balk him and not to to say no to the Lord. He wants us to go along with him and let him develop in us his purpose. The end result is we're going to be like Jesus. So we can become more like him every day in our life as God works on us or it's going to be an abrupt change when we see the Lord and he'll have a lot of things to change. But God wants to develop in us the likeness of Jesus Christ every day. Why? Because he has a purpose. And I'm glad that God deals with us because he has a purpose. He knows what he's going to do with us. And so everything that comes in our life is working toward that purpose. And if you had something really bad happen in your life, you can know this if you're a Christian. God has a purpose. I don't understand it. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe it doesn't feel good. Maybe you'd much much rather change the plan, but you know it's God's plan and God has a purpose. And you wait for him to work all things together according to his will. God has a purpose. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he hath begun a good work in us, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a friend. What a friend. God has a purpose for us. That's the kind of God he is. He is a God with purpose. 
He knows what he's doing. And then there's another thing about God. The God of the Bible is active. The God of the Bible is active. Psalm 92 said like this, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning, thy faithfulness every night, upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy works. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. God's working. God's working in your life. God is active. He is always doing things. The Bible says in Psalm 40, verse 5, Many, O Lord, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. He concludes that verse by saying, They are more than can be numbered. Jesus said it like this, My Father worketh, and hitherto I work. Jesus is busy all the time. Just think about it. He's interceding for us. How many people is interceding for? Millions at the same time. Maybe billions, probably, at the same time. All over the earth, people who've trusted Christ as their Savior, they're approaching boldly the throne of grace, and God has time for every one of them individually. I can't wrap my mind about that. It's almost unbelievable, but it's believable because God says so. And God is, is doing that for us. He's active. He's working all the time. When God made the heavens and the earth, he didn't stop, but he keeps them all working. The other day we were coming back from Bible camp, and we were driving uh, Route 35 towards uh, Washington Courthouse. Mike was behind us, and I just mentioned to the kids, hey, kids, look at that sunset. And one of them said, wow, something like that. Isn't that beautiful? And uh, I explained it. And then I got a phone call, and it was Mike. He said, you see that sunset? What were we both doing? What were all of us doing? We were marveling at the God who made that. He's working. Every day, you know, same thing happens. The sun comes up. That's our terminology, and it goes down. And uh, the other day, we got the rain, and then we got the sunshine. And, all, and we were sitting at the picnic tables the other day and said, wow, was, isn't that breeze nice? <laughs> who, got, who sent the breeze? The Lord did. The Lord's doing And that was for us, but all of the world, he's doing the same thing. He's doing whatever he decides to do, and he has a purpose for it, and he's active. He's always working. God is never lazy. God never is sitting up in heaven just taking a nap. He's always active. He works all things together for good to those that love him. The Bible says it like this in Psalm 121, verse 4. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. God never takes a nap. I got home yesterday from the picnic, and I'd been up since about 6 in the morning because I had to go to the airport to get the kids, and then we had the picnic, and then we had played the ball games, and my wife said, now, honey, don't be out there playing much. I said, I'll play an inning. Well, I cheated, and I played whatever innings they played. (laughs) But I felt good, but I got home, and I was just dead tired, and I took a nap for an hour. Then I came back down to the church, and, but uh, I, was, I was busy, but the Lord gave me sleep. I needed sleep. Last night I needed sleep, but the Lord doesn't. He never gets tired. 
He's active all the time. Isn't it great to have a friend who's always there? He's always active. He never gets tired. He always has the energy that he needs. He has the the ability to do anything that needs to be done. God is active. But then there's another thing about God's personality, and that is he's free. He's free. He is free to do anything he wants to do. He answers to no one. He answers to no one. He is sovereign. He's free. Job 23, verse 13 says, What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Daniel 4, verse 35, we saw it a while ago. He doeth according to his will. Ephesians 1, 1, verse 11, He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And because he's free, guess what he can do? He can answer our prayers. (laughs) He can answer our prayers. He doesn't have to check with anybody to see if it's all right. He can answer our prayers. And so he says, call unto me, Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. He's free to answer our prayers. And he's all able to do that. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's great to know a God that is free to respond to us. And all we have to do is call out to him. God is free. Also, the God of the Bible, and with this we'll close, is emotional. You know, a person... A true person has emotions. I mean, some are, you know, they really keep their emotions in, but you push the right buttons and everybody has emotions. Some men uh, apologize because they cry at certain times. Don't ever apologize for that. God made us emotional. Why did he make us emotional? Because he's emotional. And we're made in his image. Let me tell you some of the emotions that God has. God expresses anger. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Wow. I'd hate to be one of the wicked. God is angry with the wicked every day. He also expresses wrath. That's not just anger, but, you know, acting on that anger, he expresses wrath. The Bible says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know, the world today might justify all these terrible sins that are going on and act like it's normal, but God doesn't justify it. God says he's angry with the wicked and his wrath will be displayed. The Lord is a great God. He also expresses hatred. The Bible says in Psalm 5, verse 5, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. God is a God who hates. He hates all workers of iniquity. Proverbs 6, verse 16, you remember he says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination to him. And he mentions the proud look, the lying tongue, he that sheds innocent blood, that's the abortionist, I think, as well as others. And then he concludes that list by he that soweth discord among his brethren. God says he hates those things. So God's an emotional God. He's a true person, and he hates certain things. And then he expresses jealousy. 
The Bible says in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, when a person worships a false idol, the Lord says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God will not share his glory with anybody. He is the only God. There is no one else. And for you to bow down to an idol is an offense to a holy God. And God says, I'm jealous. I'm a jealous God. But then I'm glad there are other things about the Lord. The Bible says he expresses compassion. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Aren't you glad God's a compassionate God? Aren't you glad that he has compassion for you? He expresses love, the Bible tells us. Jeremiah 31, speaking of the children of Israel, he says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. In John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world that makes him angry. The, war, the, the, world, the world that would... Uh, that would bring his wrath, he says, I don't want to bring that wrath. I love them. And I'm going to send my son to die for them so they will not have to go to hell. And God's loved the world. First John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. God is a God of love. He also expresses pity. It's probably the same as compassion, but he says it like this in Psalm 103, verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He's a person who experiences grief or expresses grief. The Bible says in Judges 10, verse 16, he was grieved for the, he was grieved for the mystery, misery of Israel. Because of their sin, it brought terrible things on, on them, and they were hurting because of their sin. And God looked down from heaven and says, I'm grieved because of their misery. I don't like them to hurt. I'm grieved because of their misery. And then he says in the book of Ephesians, he tells us, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed in the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Don't quench the Spirit of God. And we can do that when God impresses upon us we're supposed to live. He tells us this is wrong, but yet we decide to do it. God says we grieve his Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. He's trying... To, he's controlling us. He's doing what he can uh, to make us know this, but we deliberately go against him. And the Lord says, I'm grieved because you do that. You grieve the Holy Spirit so God can be grieved. God also expresses joy as a person. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, So shall thy God rejoice over thee. God can rejoice over us. He can rejoice when we trust him and, and serve him. He can rejoice. The Bible says in Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. You some might wonder, is it, going to be, is it going to be fun to go to heaven? Is it going to be happy to go to heaven? I mean, uh, what are we going to do? Float around in clouds and strum a harp all the time? <laughs> some people have that image. No, the Lord says we'll serve him and it'll be joyful. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Wow, it's going to be good to be with Jesus. And because God is a God who expresses joy, also he expresses laughter. The Bible says in Psalm 2, verse 4, the heathen are raging against him, and they, they act like they're going to overcome the Lord. And the Lord and it says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. 
and all these proud, arrogant people today who are going against the Lord and forsaking his word and and cursing his name and all of that, the Lord says he has anger and wrath toward them, but he also laughs that they would think that they could get the victory over God. And God laughs. Yes, he's a true person. God has emotions because he's a a true person. And thank the Lord that we can know that person. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can know the living God, the intelligent God, the self-conscious and complete God, the, the God who's a spirit, the purposeful God, the active God, the free God, the emotional God, all wrapped up in the personhood of Jesus, in the personhood of God. And we as Christians have the privilege of knowing him. As I prepared this message, I have to say I was a little convicted because I don't think I know him as well as I should. And aren't all of us convicted that God sometimes is just like a force, you know, and somebody we can call on if we need help. But he's a person. And he's grieved when we don't serve him and we don't, we don't follow him. And we should consider the Lord more as a person. As we get to know him, we will do that. And Paul said, I want to know him. And may God's, our desire be to know God. If you do know the Lord as your personal Savior, our desire should be to know him better, to increase in that knowledge of the Lord. If you don't know the Lord as Savior, you can by trusting Jesus as your personal Savior. You see, the way you get to heaven is based on who you know. Do you know him? Do you know him? Truly know the Lord through personal faith in Jesus Christ. The way to get to heaven, it's based on who you know. You must know Jesus. One of my favorite songs, I'd like to sing it as I close. Should I at the gate of heaven appear to answer the question, what claim hast thou here? What hast thou to offer? Yea, what is thy plea? With blessed assurance, my answer would be, all that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I plead, all that I need is Jesus. Father, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you that you've revealed yourself through your Son. And we thank you, Lord, that we can know you. Help us who know Jesus as our Savior to want to know you better through a personal life of obedience every day, through communion with you, through your word, and through prayer. Help us to know you better. But Lord, for that person who's not saved, help them to realize what they're missing out on. They can actually know the awesome God. And I pray they'll turn in faith to Jesus today and accept him before it's too late. We pray in Jesus' name.